You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by SolarEdge. SolarEdge lets you drive your electric vehicle on solar power with the world's first two-in-one EV charging solar inverter. Run your EV on sunshine with SolarEdge. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor and publisher of The Driven and also its sister site, reneweconomy.com.au. And today we're talking to Jane Hunter. She's the new CEO of Tritium, the Brisbane-based fast charging development company, um, going gangbusters both in Australia and overseas. Jane, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks very much, Giles. Thanks for having me, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Well, look, first of all, congratulations on taking your role. Um, It was just a month ago, I think, and you're a former executive with Boeing, um, and uh, sorry to start the podcast with a terrible joke, you must be feeling somewhat grounded now. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty good, actually, and and I am, although, you know, we can talk about some of the, you know, incredible synergies there are actually between um, the car industry as well as the aircraft industry, and um, one of the jokes I like to tell is that um, given that I've done planes and automobiles, I just need to do trains, and I will have done all three. Well, maybe Tritium can actually get a charging station, which is big enough for a train. Yeah, well, light rail could be uh, um, on the cards for electrification for sure. So that may well be to come. <laughs> so just tell us, remind us a little bit about Tritium then. So it's a um, you're, you're you're based in Brisbane. Um, it's an Australian-based um, maker of fast chargers and lately ultra-fast chargers, and it's gotten a fairly handy share of the global market, hasn't it? Look, it absolutely has. It's been a huge success story really for Australia and I think, you know, to some extent not known across the country um, for what it is. So they have, um, you know, 15 to 20% of the market share for these fast DC chargers um, in Europe. Um, They've got 95% of the market share across Australia and New Zealand, um, which might be to be expected being a homegrown product, Um, and 20 to 25% of the US market which is really quite a phenomenal story for an Australian-grown um, IP, you know, homegrown story of a business that started with three founders, you know, working under the, um, you know, one of the founders' parents' house um, and have grown this into, you know, a global export business with, um, you know, if effectively they've got offices in Amsterdam and in Los Angeles as well as in Brisbane. And Brisbane is actually the main manufacturing hub exporting to the world. So really quite an unusual story of um, homegrown IP and global export. Uh, so a huge success story in what's a really exciting cutting-edge technology and, and something that um, I'm almost certain will become the future state for, for vehicles and is disrupting the industry as we speak. Uh, but also, you know, some very close synergies to where I've come from and, um, you know, happy to talk to those too, Giles. Well, yeah, let's, let's get into those in a minute. I just thought um, is, is another interesting part of the Tritium story is that it has taken a, uh, um, a sizable share of a global market based in a country which doesn't have much of a market in that sector at all. I mean, you say that um, Tritium's got 90% of the Australian market, but the Australian market is, look, it's growing, isn't it? But it's a long way behind um, international markets. And I guess that's a, another interesting um, um, sort of you know, side to the story. 
Absolutely. Uh, look, the bulk of the market currently and the bulk of our fleet is certainly in Europe. Uh, and Europe, as you'd probably be aware, is something of a, a two-step uh, economy for EVs. So some countries are, are just leaps and bounds ahead of others. Um, Norway up there at close to 50% um, uptake of EVs. Um, the Netherlands, not far behind. China, growing market. Um, Germany, South Korea and the US are up there in those top sort of five to six countries. Um, but, you know, really interestingly, you, you're seeing growth in certain other countries like France and Spain um, and increasing uptake. But, yeah, very much um, a market that is partially dependent on government incentives and um, things that governments are doing to encourage the uptake of EVs. But then there's also countries in there that have had absolutely no incentives and have also had a high uptake. So, you know, if we look at countries like, say, Belgium and Sweden, uh, Switzerland, you've got um, some level of tax release in certain cantons in Switzerland, uh, but like Australia, pretty much no incentives to buy EVs in Belgium, um, and they're up there uh, also in the countries with EVs. So it's a really interesting um, look at the cultures of different countries as to where take-up's been high and, and where take-up's been slower. Just make it complicated for a company like yours trying to work out where to to, to conduct business. Um, do you respond to the policies already in place, or the, where the policies may one day be in place? Um, it's an in, interesting sort of um, part of the strategic thinking, I imagine. Well, it is. It's a bit chicken and egg. So when we see you know interesting government policies come into effect, we'll definitely go and um, talk in those countries to um, companies that are picking up that uh, particular incentive. Uh, and you see a lot of that in the US where. There's um, particular incentives being put in place by particular state governments. And when we see that, we'll definitely go over to those particular states. California is one of the hugest ones uh, and work with companies there that are really funding themselves off government incentives. Um, and some of those companies are not of the sizable global corporate that you might look at with some of our customers like, say, Siemens and Enel and Shell, who are huge global corporates, um, but they're very much working off the government incentives. A little bit similar to here with companies like Chargefox, um, even ChargeNet in New Zealand has had um, some support from government incentives. So, you know, they, they definitely have an impact on EV take-up but they're not the sole um, driving force behind how many people will buy EVs. Uh, and as you know, and I know you've spoken to lots of different people about this and are highly knowledgeable about it, Giles, there's a number of factors contributing to that. So it, it could be the local um, environment. It could be wealth of local individuals. So they're relatively expensive vehicles to take up at this point. Uh, and it, it could be highly influenced by a government incentive. So if we look at a company, a country like, say, Iceland, that's number two in the world, World, they've had very good tax incentives um, and huge savings, but that also fits the strategic um, outcomes that that Icelandic government is looking for because they're largely hydroelectric powered uh, and looking to wean themselves off Middle Eastern oil. And so it makes you know very strong strategic sense for that government um, to incentivise people to take up EVs. Hmm. Got a wonderful coincidence to report. Australia's got an island called Tasmania, which is 100% renewable powered, mostly hydro, and um, also would like to wean itself off foreign imports. Why doesn't someone like Tasmania actually get out and do the same sort of thing, or is it part of a broader issue with the uh, with the uh, with the Australian, um, w just with the whole Australian thing? I mean, you talked about Europe, and I think one of the driving forces there, and um, I don't know whether it's chicken or whether it's egg. You talked about all the different incentives and the policies there. Well, the reality is that for consumers, they now 
have about 170 vehicles to choose from, or they will during the course of 2020. And I think in Australia, it's probably still around half a dozen and probably certainly less than 10. Um, how do we get around that problem in Australia? No, look, it's a really good question because if we look at a, a state like Tasmania, you're quite right. They're, they've got a lot of hydroelectric power. They've got a very small state, which means that range anxiety could be very significantly reduced. And I have to say, we do sell a lot of charges to Tasmania, probably for that exact reason. So we see um, quite a, a number of sales coming out of Tasmania, even without the incentives, because like New Zealand, it just makes sense. When you've got a, a country that you can pretty much drive around in, you know, not too long a distance and pretty much you can get to a charger um, within 15 to 20 minutes in any area that you're in in the country. It makes complete sense for those countries to start to look at having EV charging infrastructure everywhere. And I think we will actually see that in Tasmania with or without um, you know the the subsidies, but certainly you'll see very different government policies, um, and you know it's something that I've seen across both industries. If you look at the um, aerospace industry, and I was particularly focused on unmanned aerial vehicles when I was with Boeing, but if you look at the policies of different states on both UAVs and EVs, and also underwater unmanned underwater vehicles, um, what you'll see is that they're very driven by the policies of that particular government that's in power um, at that particular time and some governments that fits with their overarching strategy um, and you know the Queensland government for example has some really interesting policies around advanced manufacturing um, they've got a 10-year roadmap for advanced manufacturing which they're really seeking to encourage high-end manufacturing and future jobs in the state so they're very interested in high-end engineering jobs like software engineers and systems engineers and they're really growing quite a hub of people in the state with those skills and encouraging people to come from interstate um, to come up and work in that hub. They've also got a really strong focus on innovation. So they're trying to grow innovative technologies um, through their advanced Queensland project. Um, so you'll see that, you know, some states have, have a very strong focus on that. And then if you look at, say, the Victorian government, they've got slightly different policies. So they've certainly spent some money around rolling out um, charger infrastructure across the state. Um, but, you know, being a a Labor government um, and probably more of a Labor left government, the um, the view of those governments tends to be that, you know, business and particularly medium to large enterprise is really set and forget and needs to, um, you know, fend for themselves and their focus more is on small, um, you know, small enterprise. And, you know, that's certainly something that I'm seeking to work with the government on and, and actually have been since my Boeing days because medium enterprise is actually really, really critical to all state economies because medium enterprise actually employs a large number of people and they're at the tipping point of turning into something really big which could sustain a huge number of jobs in the economy but it doesn't mean that they don't still need some help to make what is actually a really difficult transition for companies between where you're at um, making that jump from being small where everybody knows everybody you don't need very significant policies you know what joe smith is working on down the hall you know what fred's working on across the desk from you into a company of 300 is really the tipping point where you need to start to have policies and different skills brought into the company and that's a really um, difficult set of growing pains for companies 
Mm. Is it um, is that why you were brought into Tritium? I mean, I guess you might be at that sort of stage. If, if I'm if I'm right, you're the first chief executive of the company who wasn't a co-founder. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it is. And you know, we see that as a as a positive um, for Tritium, and it's certainly something that we've um, spoken about that way right across the business. Which is the decision was taken mutually between the board and the founders, and the founders are actually all directors as well. So they sit on the board. Um, they're not non-executive directors, but they are. Directors directors on the board and they participate in all of the decision making. Um, and that was a, a very mutual decision on their part as they sought that growth inflection point in the company. Uh, again, I really do think that tipping point is about 300. You know, it can vary between 280 and 320. But that's where you reach a point where you may not know everybody in the company. There might be new people coming in who you're not aware of. Um, if you don't have proper policies and processes in place, then um, things can go sideways quite quickly. And you need to bring in a different set of skills, which are perhaps a little bit uh, more stronger on the business operations side of things and, you know, moving away from being a, a pure technology um, company. And, you know, one of the things that the, the board certainly was quite keen on um, is to move towards a self-sustaining position for the company where they actually are profitable and can start to turn dividends and making that um, change from being a startup that's reliant on equity into a self-sustaining um, company. So, sorry. Um, and what about then the um, the the, the uh, synergies with your previous role in uh, in, in aeronautics with Boeing? Um, what what um, how does that relate to the business you're in now? Look, you know, it's a, it's a really fascinating and interesting area to work in and, you know, I'm biased but probably one of the best areas you could work in in Australia and, you know, often you have to go offshore to get brilliant jobs in Australia and, and these are some areas where you don't have to go offshore and actually we're attracting expats with significant roles to come back here and work in Australia. And the synergies are really interesting because the role that I had where I was Chief Operating Officer for the Phantom Works International Division of Boeing and for those of you listeners who, who aren't aware, Phantom Works is um, the equivalent of Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin. It's the um, advanced research and development arm, so not early stage TRL. So TRL is technical readiness level of um, a particular technology, what we call mid-stage TRL, so TRL 5 through 9. So that's when you're taking early stage research and you're starting to prototype it, test it, development build the prototypes and then eventually transition those into the sales unit of the business. So we were doing test and prototype, building things, flying things, occasionally crashing things in a safe way. Um, and it's like fun. You, uh, yeah, it's quite fun. And, uh, you know, eff effectively we had 12 to 15 advanced technology um, development projects. Um, because it's in the defence sector, some of them are, are classified, but they were in areas um, relating to, say, UAVs and UUVs. So UAVs are an unmanned aerial vehicle. A UUV is an unmanned underwater vehicle. And those um, areas of autonomy really have a very close crossover with vehicle autonomy, which, as we know, is going to be the future of vehicles and mm -hmm. is actually a very closely aligned future with EVs. And a lot of the technology is really, really similar. So the things that car manufacturers are dealing with are exactly the same things that people with UAVs are dealing with, um, detect and avoid. Tech, you know, um, technology, how does software make sure that you can detect something within a reasonable time and um, ensure that you don't have a crash? Safety, so how do you ensure the safety of the public at all times when you're flying these things? Um, and CASA is dealing with that as we speak. 
um, and really importantly, trusted autonomous systems. So how do you create something which actually is uh, trusted by people uh, when it's done by a machine. And you have to come up with very rigorous testing and very rigor- rigorous decisions. Sometimes they're philosophical decisions uh, about what decisions you're making to trust an autonomous system. And, you know, particularly in defence, of course, that's highly important. But it's no different when you're driving a vehicle. You know, at, at how does a vehicle distinguish between a person, um, between a garbage bag on the road, um, between a rock? And, you know, these um, things are all the, the same um, decisions around technology that are being solved in different areas, but they're going to come together and converge in the end. Uh, and we need to have more collaboration between those two industries. But I certainly see it as very close synergy with where I was working before, um, which is advanced technology, advanced manufacturing techniques. And, you know, the the added bonus in, you know, working in an industry like this and was certainly very attractive to me is that you're also looking at changing the face of vehicles and the way that we drive vehicles. We're looking to be part of a, a revolution in the transport industry where we wean ourselves off petrol and diesel and we move towards renewable energy sources. And there's some fantastic strategic advantages to Australia in that, in the sense that, you know, we can wean ourselves off Middle Eastern oil um, and there's some great political advantages to that. Um, the Middle East has traditionally certainly had uh, a number of uh, political disruptions which have caused us to have to involve our defence force in that region. Oil prices have been very volatile uh, and if you can wean yourself off that and become self-sufficient, there's just some huge strategic advantages to the country in that. Um, and then, you know, not to mention you get to the health benefits. So you're reducing pollutants and emissions, you're improving human health, um, and you're also reducing noise pollution, which I think is really underrated. But, you know, I'm really excited to think about the fact that you're not going to have um, car noise in the inner city. You're not going to have um, vehicle noise to the extent that you get on freeways. And I was speaking to somebody recently in the industry who was in Copenhagen and said it's just made a huge difference when you sit at a coffee shop in the middle of the CB. CBD on the road in Copenhagen and you can hear yourself talk it's it's a different environment entirely and and I think we forget that you know noise pollution is actually really quite detrimental to people who live on busy roads and um, you know it's going to open up for us different ways of living and if I go even further and you know I know this seems very science fiction but certainly the former CEO um, of Boeing and you know obviously he he suffered the loss of his role during the 737 um, you know crisis that they've had mm. but when he was in the role he was always talking about flying taxis as not being too far in the future and if we look at flying taxis can you imagine what's that going to open up in terms of places that people can live in Australia? I mean, we have vast amounts of unused land, for example, between the Sunshine Coast and Brisbane. Um, it will change the way that we have to live in the inner city. There'll, there'll be an entire change in our way of life when we can open up some of these, you know, different transport options. And um, how, yeah, How far do you think we are away from that? I think he was talking 2030. So it's not, you know, a a huge difference in terms of now, you know, it should be within our lifetime. And, you know, you can see where we're going with autonomous vehicles already. I don't know if you watched some of the the China documentaries, but during COVID-19, did you see the robot vehicles that were delivering parcels and medicine um, to people 
and were fully autonomous just driving down yeah, the roads. I, I, and I didn't see things. them, but I heard about them, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite amazing. So, you know, I think it's a quite a near-term revolution that we're going to see. Mm. And, you know, the other thing is just enabling zero emissions driving, Giles. You know, there there's no downside to that. There's only upside. Um, and for a, like a city like Sydney, can you imagine the difference in the air quality? And for a city like Beijing, you know, imagine the difference in the air quality. <sighs> Well, and that and and that and that that will amount to um, thousands of lives saved um, because of just um, just just the uh, noxious emissions which um which, which come from sort of petrol and and diesel cars. I'm wondering though if the population is starting to get that. I mean, we've seen some really interesting trends in the um, FCI data. That's the Federation Federated Chambers of Automotive Automotive Industries in Australia. 24 months of downturn, falling sales um, in the last month has been quite catastrophic, um, probably compounded by the impact of the COVID-19 virus. So down 25% from the previous March, which in itself was a fall from the previous March before that. What are you reading into these figures? It's interesting, the FCI, FCAI seems to blame everything apart from the emergence of electric vehicles and, um, and, and fuel-efficient vehicles, but um, the data does show when you sort of dig into it that um, electric vehicles from a small base are actually growing quite rapidly um, hybrids have actually taken off I'm not too sure if they're the long-term mm. solution and I guess the only um, sort of fun spanner in the works in the last month was the disappearance of the commercial market but I guess they might have um, spied the the virus impacts earlier than others um, but anyway just just the overall decline in petrol and diesel sales and and, and that upsurge in interest um, at least in, in electric vehicles. Yeah, I mean, look, isn't it fantastic to see? And I'm not sure that really anyone was predicting that we would see this. And, you know, obviously there's complicated factors that are that are impacting those 24 straight months of declines that we've seen for ICE vehicles. You know, they, they vary between environmental, environmental political, um, economic um, for some countries. But it's incredibly heartening to see that there's this, increase occurring for EV um, and PHEV, um, plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, uh, and to see the fleet sales increasing as well and people moving their fleets, you know, across to electric vehicles. So, I mean, I think what we're seeing there is the fact that there's a very strong interest from the public in um, where the technology is going and what the technology can bring. And if they can afford it, they're very keen to be a part of it. And, and I think that's where, you know, Tesla is a great example in that we know that Tesla holds, you know, by far the majority of the market share. But Tesla got in early. So they had the first mover advantage. They've now got quite a good and interesting range of cars, including a cheaper car in the Model 3. Um, obviously, they've got some you know, very strong market share in America, which is their homegrown market, but they've also got a huge share across the rest of the world. So Tesla's really you know, led the way in that. Not, not far, of course, behind a, a, you know, um, Hyundai and Nissan and some of the other early up uptakes, uh, BMW, Jaguar, Renault, they're all in the game now. Uh, and I think what we're, you know, seeing is is a handful of factors. I, I attended the Bloomberg NEF conference in San Francisco recently, 
they're not convinced yet that we're at that uh, what they call the tipping point, um, which you know requires a certain number of of factors that they calculate um, that need to be in place before you fully reach the tipping point. And interestingly, one of those they mentioned was just um, understanding. So the knowledge of the public, and there's still a lot of disinformation and, and lack of understanding by the vast mm, majority of the true. public. Yeah, which is really sad. And actually, one of the things that is sad to see is some of the disinformation campaigns that have been put together by some of the vehicle manufacturers because, um, you know, we we don't need that uh, to add to that, you know, lack of understanding about EVs. But what we are certainly seeing is that increased uptake has a multiplier effect because, you know, people talk to people they know, people watch people who've got them, people try them out. Um, And as you know, once you've tried one, it's very hard to go back. And I don't think that's just because of the savings that you make in fuel costs and in low maintenance, but it's all of the good things about the convenience of charging at home or at work, um, the fact that you don't have to buy fuel and it saves you money, the fact that there's no noise, the fact that the pickup on them is really good, so they're quite nippy, you know, fast little cars so you Mm. don't suffer. Uh, and, And I find it very hard to believe that you'd go back after you've tried an EV. And it's been really interesting experience for me. I obviously only got an EV when I started at um, Tritium in September last year. Before that, I drove a hybrid Lexus um, and I now have both. So I have my hybrid Lexus. My second car is the EV and I use them differently. So I use my EV consistently and always around town. I always drive it to work. I 100% charge it at work. I don't bother charging at home because I've got fast DC charges at work, which are incredible convenient and that will keep me going for the whole week if not a week and a half and um, you change the way that you charge so I I know a number of other people will have said this but it is more like a mobile phone you're watching the bars drop down um, you get to a point where you think oh look I really need to to charge the vehicle you'll go and look for somewhere to charge it if it's at home that's great if it's not you'll find somewhere else Uh, and it is a it's a different experience but certainly one that I, I find it very hard to think that you'd go back from Um, Mm. and I think often once you've got one you could see that you could have two if you need two cars if yeah. it's interesting, we had a nice article published in the um, in the Driven about a month ago from someone who sort of flipped the whole thing around and just imagined if you're going to go from an electric car to a petrol car and all the different things that you'd actually have to do and all of a sudden you'd have noise, you'd have pollution, you'd have to go down to a petrol station where you're splashing sort of flammable fuels around the place, um, you know, increased maintenance from all the different bits and pieces Absolutely. that would break and, um, and, uh, and, and engines that needed sort of, you know, high maintenance costs and things like that. And it was just really yeah. just... Such, yep. and like such a dumb idea um, that um, yes I, I so I think as you say this it's the uh, information to the general public um, that um, that's quite key here look I'm interested in just getting on to a couple of things before end of time um, New South Wales is one of a number of states and, and governments that are going to be unveiling an EV policy um, this year well they've actually given a bit of a hint of what they're up to have you sort of waded through that and worked out what's good and bad about that policy um, and, and and I guess the next question would be and what you're hoping to come out of the federal government um, with their long promise I'm not too sure if it's still going to happen now with all the focus on the pandemic but um, if it does come out what 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 would you hope to see? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And the New South 
Wales government policy is probably the best one I think that I've seen. Um, the the really positive start is just to see them acknowledging the importance of the infrastructure to the uptake of vehicles. So there's obviously a chicken and egg uh, thing going on here. If you don't have the infrastructure, it makes people less comfortable that they can do the long trips and you do get the range anxiety. Um, anyone who drives them, though, knows that you tend to drive them around the city and that will get you a week to week and a half, sometimes two weeks of, of driving. So it is a little bit of a furphy, um, but you certainly then get into some level of range anxiety where you need to look up um, where you can charge. So for, for me, for example, if I'm driving to the Gold Coast, I'll find out where I could charge when I'm at the Gold Coast because my charge gets me there. It'll get me about halfway back, but I really do need to charge while I'm up there. Um, and, and to see this, you know, zero plan that they've put up, which the number one priority is driving the uptake of proven emission reduction technologies and, and EVs are now falling into this category. And it's fantastic to see that they're now described as a proven technology um, and they fall into this number one priority. So that's that's really exciting to see, just to see them make that um, change in public, to put it in writing, but also, you know, not to test the public too much by the second priority being about empowering them to make sustainable choices, not forcing them to make the choices. Now, you know, for those of us working in the industry, uh, I'm sure we wouldn't mind seeing forced choices, but we understand that that's not going to be palatable um, to the majority of the public and so what we need to do are, are sustainable policy decisions that, that work for everyone. I guess I'd really like to see the federal government um, also pick up some of this and I, I think it would be extremely beneficial for them with some of the leading roles that they get to play worldwide in how we're going to deal with global emissions. And I think there's some really easy wins for them um, in this regard that don't actually involve a very significant investment, um, but actually do involve just empowering, giving people the knowledge um, and not disincentivising um, EVs. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen recently that is a, a disincentive and where you just want absolutely fair treatment is for some of our customers like GoEvi, and I think you've spoken to Chris Mills from GoEvi in the past on, mm -hmm. on one of your podcasts, they have um, an extremely high um, a, a application of a cost when they need to uh, get a site kicked off. And that cost is, is based on the potential drawdown from the grid, but it is a lot higher um, than what is necessarily the norm and is accounting for worst possible case scenario and, and will make it very prohibitive uh, for them to, you know, uh, get electrical connections in place. And that's where you can sort of see um, disincentives where all we're looking to do is have fair treatment to, to level the playing field, not necessarily to have favourable treatment, um, but to have fair treatment. Um, and around that, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that with governments, when you want to incentivise positive behaviour that has strategic advantages for Australia, um, why wouldn't you in some places put incentives in place to get to that strategy that you want to get to? Um, and there's some really significant strategic advantages and political advantages to Australia in going down this path, because if we think about the fact that we almost certainly would like to wean ourselves off oil from the Middle East um, that has to be imported and that also involves defence spending in the Middle East, there's some strategic advantages for their country that we really should consider at a higher level and decide what we want to do um, to encourage that, you know, local mm. use of power here in Australia and not to have to import oil. 
Mm, absolutely. And, and um, we did a very good pod, um, podcast um, recently about that um, the fuel security issue. Um, and um, I recommend um, listeners go back and um, have a look at the back catalogue of uh, the Driven podcast for that one. Look, let's finish off just with some specific plans for, for Tritium. Um, wh- where are you up to now? Um, what's the next exciting development to come out of um, your company? I mean, you're doing ultra fast charges now. I'm not too sure whether you've actually done any. any any um, deployment in Australia yet? Um, when's that likely to happen? Are you considering the house market? Um, I know that's been a discussion in the past. Wasn't too sure whether you're going to go and put your toe into that one yet. Um, yeah, what, what, what's um, what's on your inbox at the moment? Yeah, look, lots of exciting things, and and probably one of the things that encouraged me, you know, to come across to Tritium is that they certainly do invest a significant amount of their revenue back into R and D, and that's actually incredibly unusual in Australia. And so, one of the things I used to speak about in in my Boeing role when we talk about the commercialization of innovation is that Australia ranks very very low in terms of investment in R and D, and really right down the bottom in terms of foreign investment in R&D. So it's very, very hard to attract people to invest in Australian R&D for, for various complex reasons. Now, Tritium spends a, you know, a very reasonable amount of their revenue on R&D, which means we've got a really interesting pipeline um, of new product. Um, and that's being led by David Finn, um, one of the founders whose focus is just going to be on you know, cracking the atom on some of those really complex problems that come with high uh, powered charges and um, looking at what's next and what's in the future. And that, of course, looks at things like vehicle to grid, plug and charge, um, electrified fleets. So what type of product do you need to support uh, an electrified fleet? As we know that there's going to be electrified fleets, not just in vehicles, but also, of course, in buses and potentially light rail. Um, standards alignment would be something that'd be really great to see across the industry. We know that we've currently got, you know, dual cables between CCS and Chatamo and then mm-hmm. Tesla has an adapter. Um, it'd be great to see that, you know, converge into something that's the same, the industry wide. Um, in expansion into Asia is something that we're really focused on. We've got a, a bid currently with Singapore Power that are the biggest utility provider in Singapore, working very closely with them. Uh, certainly looking at countries like Thailand that have um, some very major property developers looking to put um, some of the charges into their very huge multi-residential or commercial projects where they want the ability for um, people who live there or are coming to work there to, to do EV charging. India. Um, is another really interesting market for us. And and I think, you know, beyond Tritium's plans, there's also some really critical EV trends um, that we're going to encourage and, and are hoping to try and help uh, get across the line. And some of those will be things like, I think I mentioned before, having two-car families, having that second small car be an EV, um, looking to help with the fleet uh, market where we're potentially working with OEMs, partnering with us so that the manufacturers and um, the lease providers and the charger providers can come up with a holistic solution uh, for governments and local councils who are looking to electrify their fleets and just making that easier for them. 
Um, and it's really heartening to see how more and more businesses are doing that. I was actually looking at Hyundai's website not long ago, looking at uh, the 2020 Ionic that they're bringing out and, of course, the Kona. Um, and they have a fantastic little calculator in there which lets you see how much you can save, you know, both in petrol and in maintenance, and that helps make the decision easier. And I'd like to see the same done for fleet so that when you're a fleet operator and you're looking at why would I electrify your fleet? We need to make that easy for people because it's hard data to find. You can't just look it up on the internet. Um, you need to have somebody who's a technology winner um, to help you make those decisions. Um, definitely looking to see more EV models with the um, a better range and lower cost. Uh, but I, I again was you know really pleased to see those two wheels car of the year being EVs. The Mercedes EQC looks like an amazing car, certainly not cheap at one hundred thirty nine thousand. Um, and and the Tesla Model Three is really quite comparable at low sixties. That's uh, relatively comparable with the Kona. So a couple of you know coming down. Um, you know, prices not as low as the Leaf, not as low as the Ionic, uh, but prices that are getting towards the more reasonable mark. Uh, I, I was a little disappointed as a Queenslander to see that um, Tesla's stuck with the panoramic sunroof. Um, not, not one hundred percent sure, but <laughs> <laughs> that's something it, I want in Queensland. Though, isn't it? Yeah, look. Well, I've, actually, I've actually got a three and I live um, just in northern New South Wales, not too far away from Queensland. It hasn't been too bad, actually. I've just been through a summer and um, it's um, not as bad, but I'm, I had the same concerns. But um, look, it, it, it's it's not too bad, but um, you do get a hot seat if you've got a black leather, which I have. Um, it can be hot to sit on sometimes. But, yeah, um, because it's the, mm. the point is that they um, protect you from UV, is that right, but not from, say, there's, there's one of the particular um, types of light they protect you from, but not the one that causes heat. Uh, and David Finn was letting me know that his Jag is one of the hottest cars he's had because of the panoramic um, sunroof on that EV. <laughs> so, so I think I've seen a lot of blogs from people in Texas and Arizona and Queensland saying, where's the one with the roof? <laughs> because we don't... Yes, with the one roof. Yeah, we don't Not too sure really you're going to get that anytime soon. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know about yeah. you, Giles, but you know I'm a um, you know a very fair-skinned redhead, so I just don't need any more sun. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Okay, well maybe the Tesla's not for you. It sounds like you might have a Leaf or a um, or an Ionic or something like that if you're only getting to the Gold Coast I, I, um, and, I and halfway back. That's right. I have the Ionic, and um, we also have the BMW i3, um, which I move between the the guys in the team use them for testing all the time. So depending what they're uh -huh. testing, I'll use the other one. Um, and look, both of them are really interesting, different cars. The high Hyundai um, Ionic, I think you've driven that, haven't you, Giles? Is it, yes, I have. Yeah, it's a lovely little car, quite a fast pickup, um, you know, uh, advanced technology, nice little car to drive, very zippy around town car. The BMW i3 is a really interesting car, and one of the things I particularly like about it being a smaller woman is that it's got a really amazing panoramic view through the windscreen, which is partly caused by having that really deep um, dashboard that you don't get in an ICE vehicle. Yes, I was, trying, I was trying to figure out what to do with that deep dashboard. I sort of figured that like there should be another sort of front row of seats there at the front there or something, or yeah. put a picnic basket there or something. It's almost or, wasted you know, space. Maybe a row of books or something like that. I wasn't too sure. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. It's Asking for something, isn't it? But um, if you've driven one, you get a, a really amazing amount of panoramic view through that window. That's true. Yeah, which is which yeah, is really yeah, no, fantastic. No, yeah. 
I did. And we got from Brisbane all the way down to the northern rivers of New South Wales in one charge quite easily, actually, but we wouldn't have made the return trip, but uh, nice car. And how are you finding the costs in terms of uh, where you're charging along the way? Well, happily in uh, where I am, there's a couple of charging stations... um, uh, which are free still. So, I mean, the wonderful opportunity. Um, I can pretty much, I can't quite get to, well, I've, got, I've got a Model 3, so I can't quite get to Brisbane and back um, without charging. I probably could if I drove slower. But um, um, but look, I've, I've driven, I think, about 20,000, almost 20,000 Ks in my Model 3 so far and um, um, have been fortunate enough not to have spent a single cent on, on anything yet. So, um, Well, that's what I'm um, hearing from others. I heard someone who broke, uh, drove from Melbourne up to Brisbane the other day and he said it cost him $8 because there were so many free charges along the way. So obviously that won't last, but we should still expect it to be significantly less um, than paying for fuel. So, you know, a lot of fantastic well, advantages so, yeah. to and I think, look, the only other thing I'd touch on, Giles, is you know Tritium as a as a company, our, our competitive advantage, and uh, I'm sure James would have touched on this when you last spoke to him. But you know, there's there's three particular things that I think have really helped us take on the world um, as an Australian company, which isn't easy when you're manufacturing in Australia. Is the technology is really world leading, and I know you know this. It's liquid cooled, um, and it's not just liquid cooled, but it's actually liquid cooled with an environmentally friendly liquid, which is not the case uh, for certain other charges that are using um, a liquid cooled oil that um, is not environmentally environmentally friendly so that's been a wonderful thing it's fully sealed which makes it this very low maintenance um, you know in dusty environments which might be mining um, in environments near the ocean where a salt laden um, just in terms of ingress and egress of creatures like ants and of water so that's been really good for maintenance and and is really something that the the guys had a competitive advantage in because they came up with this liquid cooled technology over lots of trial and error and they certainly tried the other sort um, and it was terribly terribly messy when it leaked the the oil based sort Um, The aesthetics are something we're constantly hearing about from customers. I think every customer I've spoken to, whether it's large customers like Siemens or Shell, smaller customers like Chargefox, they really like the slim, small footprint that you get from the liquid-cooled tritium chargers and also the curves. They've been very popular. Of course, also, interestingly, really culturally specific. So the the curves are loved in um, cultures like America and Australia where they see it as um, very beautiful and something that might be suitable for a high-end workshop. Uh, You might be selling them at the Tesla showroom. You might be selling them, you know, out of Volvo, BMW, those sorts of um, high-end shopping centres and hotels really like the look and feel of the charger and is often right up there with what they care about. Uh, And the third one's customer service. So because we're a small company, we're around the 350 mark, coming up to 365, um, you get this intimate... um, very easy access to the top echelons of the company. When you call in, you don't get a large call center. You get somebody that you know. You've got a very quick escalation up through the company before you're speaking to the COO or the CEO. Uh, And that's seen as a big advantage if you compare us to some of our large global corporate competitors like ABB. So, you know, it's, it's, those are probably the three critical things which I think have helped Tritium get to where they've got to in, you know, what might be a market that otherwise you wouldn't see an Australian company doing well in. Hmm. 
Well, Jane, thank you very much for talking with Driven Podcast and congratulations once again on your appointment and good luck with it. And we look forward to getting back in touch with and having another conversation further down the track. Yeah, thanks, Giles. Absolute pleasure. And it's a fantastic um, area that you're working in. And, uh, you know, I really thank you for being such a, uh, an advocate and right at the front line of, of um, pushing what's such an important revolution for the world. Well, thank you very much. And um, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our sponsor for this podcast, um, Solar Edge. Um, you'll hear a message from them later on. Um, thank you. Uh, please do go back to our back catalogue of the um, uh, Driven podcast and also check out our other podcasts you'll find on our, um, our sister sites, the um, Energy Insiders podcast and the Solar Insiders podcast. And please do leave a review. Um, Apple Tunes, Apple, Apple is probably the best place to do so. It helps. Um, our podcast become well known and more distributed around the place and um, we thank you for your support that's all for now we'll be back again in a week or two bye for now the driven podcast was brought to you by solar edge solar edge ev chargers combine solar energy and grid power to charge your electric vehicle up to four times faster than a standard wall charger whether you own an ev now or want to be ev ready future proof your home with solar edge visit solaredge.com slash AUS and drive your solar further.